Hello, folks. Grab onto your lean rails. We're about to break the time barrier. We are now conducting our final systems check. Please stow all carry-on items in the under-seat compartment. Uh, I have traveled through time as often as you have traveled from the Earth to the moon, sir. Yes. Easy, boys. Too much coffee? They say we are birds of a feather. We'll hop the amigos. No matter where he goes, the one, two, and three goes. We're always together. Listen, you bird brains, if you're gonna keep your jobs, you gotta get hip. I know all about it, see? Step inside our storybook, imagine what's in store. W Radio, your information station. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 225 for the week of June 4th, 2011. In Walt Disney World, the concept that everything speaks holds true not just for attractions and shows, but restaurants, environments, and even the resorts. And with that, it means that everything you see and encounter tells a story and every detail has meaning even in places you might not otherwise expect and that holds true for the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin and this week we'll take a very close look at the interesting history of these resorts their theming secrets and myths that surround them as well it's a fascinating look into two buildings with a deeper Disney connection and story than you might expect Stay tuned for some information about upcoming meets, including our fundraising for Japan, before I play some of your voicemails at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. As I'm wandering here on the promenade in front of Disney's Yacht and Beach Club Resort, and I look across Crescent Lake to the beautiful boardwalk across the way, I'm reminded about how everything, and I tell you this all the time in Walt Disney World, has a reason and has a story behind it. And certainly that holds true for these hotels, for Epcot Center behind us, and uh, the boardwalk across the way. But off in the distance, uh, I look across over the bridge, and I see two buildings that, to a lot of people, probably have no story. Uh, and for even more people, probably don't know the history. And that is, of course, the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin Hotels. And uh, surprised as you might be, they too have a fascinating history and a story behind them as well. Uh, and also one that's surrounded by myths and urban legends. But joining me today is a man who is not a myth and is truly a Disney legend. 
He is, of course, our good friend, Jim Corcus. Welcome back, Jim. Uh, yes, let me get that $25 out of my pocket to give to you right now. Thank you very much, Lou. Always a pleasure to be on this uh, podcast. And uh, again, at, as you say, uh, the Walt Disney World uh, Swan and Dolphin are a significant part of Walt Disney World property, and yet, in a way, they aren't. And so I'm anxious to talk about it today. And we've got a special guest that's going to be helping us, too. We do. Uh, all the way from the frozen tundra of somewhere near Chicago, Illinois, <laughs> is a man who knows a lot about Walt Disney World and Disneyland history because he is the founder of Yesterland.com. He is, of course, Werner Weiss. Werner, welcome to the warm Florida sun, to the boardwalk, and to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Jim, and thank you, Lou. It's an honor and a pleasure to be on WDW Radio for the first time ever. Well, this this should be a lot of fun, and we've talked uh, about this before. Um, I, I've talked about the swan and dolphin in the past, and you know what sort of started to, to prompt this discussion was something that I think each of us has experienced before. Uh, it's that exposure to some of these Disney urban legends, uh, some of these myths. We've heard them from uh, friends. We've also heard them sometimes from cast members. And a lot of those sometimes surround the swan and dolphin. And in addition to that, I think a lot of people, and this is how I sort of preface this discussion, don't realize that like everything else we see here, these two resorts um, have a story behind them, a very, very detailed story that for the most part has been lost over time. Uh, most guests don't recognize. But I think, too, I want to go back a little bit farther because I think it's important that we understand why these hotels are here, what the relationship is to Disney, and how they came to be in the first place because that, too, is a fascinating story in and of itself. Yes, and, and Werner, didn't this all start even before uh, Michael Eisner and uh, Frank Wells came on board? Well, let's talk about when Frank Wells and Michael Eisner came on board in the mid-1980s. Uh, at that time, Disney had three hotels here in Florida. They had the uh, Contemporary, the Polynesian, and the Disney Inn, which uh, was actually in those days still called the Golf Resort, and today is uh, Shades of Green. Um, but there were two hotels in the planning stage that the old management, the pre previous management, had in planning stages. Uh, one was the uh, Grand Floridian, and there had already been work done, but um, and in fact, it would not open until after Wells and Eisner came in, but it predates their arrival. And the other is that um, the Disney Company had a deal with Tishman Hotels, which was owned by Tishman Construction, the company that was the general contractor for Epcot Center. And the idea was that uh, Walt Disney World would be a good place for conventions, but the Contemporary had a rather small convention facility, uh, Disney World needed a real convention center. And Tishman was going to build a hotel with a 1,500-room Sheraton Hotel and a 700-and-some-odd-room Crown Plaza Hotel. It was going to be located over at Hotel Plaza, uh, you know, where the Hilton and those other hotels are today near downtown, near what's now called Downtown Disney. Um, and that was all in the works, but then uh, with the arrival of the new management team, things happened. <laughs> and the idea of a convention center is something that, you know, was something that even Walt looked at very early on. You're absolutely right, uh, Lou. If we take a look at that uh, hand drawing that uh, Walt did of uh, Epcot property, it very clearly states, you know, convention facilities. And, uh, of course, uh, when uh, Magic Kingdom uh, and uh, the rest of Walt Disney World opened in uh, 71... Um, 
that was really just phase one. So convention facilities really weren't uh, there at that time. And John Tishman was, was very clever. He went and he did a study and he found that in those days, believe it or not, uh, only two out of uh, every five people that uh, uh, came to Walt Disney World were children. Most of them were adults. And he saw this wonderful opportunity for conventions because the biggest competitor at that time was Las Vegas. And that wasn't family friendly. You know, you, you can't say to the wife and kids, you know, why don't you go play the slots and go see a strip show and, you know, then I'll meet up with you later. And so here at Walt Disney World is a wonderful opportunity to I- expand that convention business. And so when uh, Michael Eisner and uh, Frank Wells came on board in 1984, actually the second day that he was here, according to the uh, book uh, Building a Dream by uh, uh, Beth uh, uh, Dunlap, is that uh, Michael Eisner had uh, a a sleepless night. And he wasn't worried about animation. He wasn't worried about live action films. He wasn't worried about the parks. What he was worried about were these gosh darn hotels that uh, uh, Tishman uh, were going to do. Isn't that true, Werner? Yes, but it took about a year until uh, things really started changing in that regard. Um, It actually turns out that in uh, around 1985, they had the official groundbreaking for the hotels that I was mentioning earlier, the Sheraton Mm -hmm. and the Crown Plaza, Um, but real construction didn't start. Then uh, fast forward to 1986, and there are press reports in places like the Wall Street Journal that Disney is about to make a giant deal with Marriott Corporation. And in fact, the three hotels that I mentioned earlier are going to become Marriott managed properties. Marriott is going to build about 20,000 additional rooms on property. And the Marriott Orlando World Center, you know, that's that big complex on the other side of I-4, would be annexed into Walt Disney World through the magic of the Reedy Creek Improvement District and the semi-governmental powers that Disney had through through that entity. Um, and that probably didn't make Tishman happy at all, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and Tishman said, wait a minute, I thought I had the 10-year exclusive, contractual exclusive deal to be able to build convention hotels, you know, starting with the ones that I mentioned, but additional ones as needed. Uh, and where in the world is Marriott coming from doing this? So um, Tishman said, we are stopping work on the hotel. Not that they, that they had ever really started work on it yet, but... Uh, um, they stopped it uh, and instead uh, started working on lawsuits. And so the uh, lawsuit, the first one was over $300 million in... Um, uh, Actually, actually, uh, yes, they they filed a three hundred and seventy one million dollar lawsuit, which would sort of cover, you know, their investment and all that. Plus, they were asking for punitive damages. And so that ran it over a billion dollars. And in fact, uh, uh, Disney Legal went to Eisner and said, uh, you know, unless you happen to have an extra billion or two hanging around, you might want to go back and uh, and uh, talk to these folks here. Eventually what happened is that Disney decided to go it alone. They decided not to go with Marriott, and they really didn't want to go with Tishman either. But there was still that nasty little business of the contract. So the way they got around that is to work out a new deal with Tishman. And it actually took a couple of years before anything was announced. And, uh, Jim, maybe you can talk about some of the things that happened, how that hotel over by Hotel Plaza, (laughs) the Crown Plaza and Sheraton, suddenly turned into this hotel that we see uh, over here in the distance. And, and in fact, you're you're right. Those those press releases uh, describe this area as the Disney Center. 
And that's how it went out in all the publicity. This was the Disney Center because it was right next to Epcot Center. And in fact, uh, Charlie Ridgway, who, who uh, I, I love dearly, and if you guys don't have his book, uh, uh, Spinning uh, Disney's World, go out and get yourself a copy. Uh, and he was the publicist, and he said that there were going to be boats and ferries that would take people from uh, these two large hotels right into the central lagoon uh, of Epcot. And so maybe that was one of the reasons for some of those boat docks in uh, World Showcase as well, is you'd just go over and you'd hop off at Morocco or whatever. But but these hotels, too, initially were not did not look like the giant swan and the dolphin we have today, too. Exactly. The original hotel, and one of the re- reasons that uh, Michael Eisner, who is a big architecture buff, did not like them is they looked like refrigerator boxes. They were apparently ugly boxes, thus the sleepless nights that Jim was referring to. And by the time the swan and dolphin were announced, uh, the architect had become Michael Graves, and there's an interesting process of how that came to be, and Jim is the world's expert on that. <laughs> I wish I were the world's expert. Actually, uh, Tishman's uh, architect, who had been working on this project right from the beginning, uh, was uh, Alan Lapidus, who really doesn't get uh, enough of the credit. Of course, on the reverse, he doesn't get any of the blame either. But uh, he had come up with those designs, didn't like that, and uh, what happened is... Uh, uh, Michael Eisner approached uh, uh, other ar- architects like Robert Venturi, and he was going to have Robert Venturi team up with uh, uh, Michael Graves. And what did Venturi say about that? Uh. <laughs> that it was like uh, putting together uh, uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, right? And Eisner, I guess, countered that, yes, in fact, he had put those two together on Raiders of the Lost Ark. So there was literally a competition to come up with designs for, for these uh, buildings. And so uh, uh, Lapidus was in the running, and he came up with this beautiful design for, for like a crystal palace, which was was beautiful. But again, it was fairly standard. And, and Michael Eisner, and this is a direct quote from Michael Eisner, I have this on video, where he says, it takes just as much money to build a great building as it does a dumb one. Uh, he is so articulate. Michael. <laughs> Eisner was so articulate, and so he wanted some. And so Michael Graves uh, uh, came in with uh, a concept where uh, there was a flat side, and then a slope, and then there was a uh, round sphere right smack dab in the center. And uh, Imagineer John Hench, who is very very knowledgeable about uh, um, architecture and all that, realized that that was uh, an homage to actually a uh, French funeral. Uh, monument. So he looked over at Eisner and he says, uh, that ought to kill 60 years worth of goodwill that the Disney company has. And uh, But Michael Eisner, uh, Michael Graves also had a, a sort of a pyramid um, uh, shape with a huge fountain uh, on top. And Robert Venturi basically decided to pull out from the competition. He didn't want to work uh, with uh, other people. And they took a look and they liked Michael Graves, although uh, basically Eisner says, you know, lighten that up, lighten that up, and we're going to team you up with Alan Lapidus. And they figured Lapidus would just be incensed and walk away. Well, Lapidus had been working for several years on this project without any money coming in, and he had an entire company, he had staff, and so, yeah, this was fine. And so uh, 
uh, he and Michael Graves actually got along very well together. He said Michael Graves had a wonderful sense of humor, but people really didn't get it, which we see in the in the resorts here. But um, he said that also Michael Graves would continually trash and joke about Disney until Michael Eisner came in the room, and then he was all politically correct. And they did a lot of their work. They did a lot of their original sketches at the Beverly Hills Hotel, which at that time had giant banana leaves on the wallpaper there as part of uh, as part of the print. I just want to I want to sort of ask you guys a question. Certainly, none of us were there in the room. It would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall. But when we go back and look at those original design, those, those square refrigerator boxes, and some of the other concepts, the the triangle with the sphere in it, what we have today. I think a lot of the questions that guests always ask, and you have to ask at the very beginning, why were these hotels going to be so very different from the well-themed resorts that we had, like a Polynesian, like a Fort Wilderness, even a golf resort? Every, every sort, everyone had a sort of um, a Disney touch to it. Why were these so very different? Well, in one sense, they aren't different in that they all represent entertainment architecture. And it's just that Michael Graves' vision of entertainment architecture is very different from the themed resorts that, uh, if you think about what's up by the Magic Kingdom, the contemporary is not really terribly themed. It was modern, considered futuristic perhaps in 1971, uh, quickly ceased to be futuristic, but uh, still is a kind of a unique place. Polynesian was certainly very nicely themed, and I think we might, most people I think have seen plans or drawings for the other, the Asian and the Persian, Persian, uh, Venetian, some uh, some really cool hotels that were planned. So the original vision was to go with that type of a theming, but again, when Michael Eisner came on board and he was this architecture buff, um, the architect is the star, just the same way that a movie star is the star, a star director, and you don't necessarily tell a star director what to do. Uh, and, and Eisner loved the design that uh, Graves came up with for the Swan and Dolphin. So you think really it, this is very much an Eisner, this was his, you know, he wanted to sort of punctuate his own design and put his own mark on where the direction of the resort construction was going. Uh, absolutely. Michael Eisner has gone on record as saying that the two legacies he feels that he's going to leave uh, with the Disney Company are uh, culinary, the improvements of culinary on, on uh, property, which I th- certainly think happened, and uh, entertainment architecture, which I think happened a- as well. And Michael Graves was the first, uh, as Werner said, the first star, the first big-name architect that was going to be involved. And in fact, uh, Eisner had set a stipulation that the hotels could not be any taller than eight stories because it would interfere with sight lines elsewhere on property. And, and we all know that the Dolphin ended up about 27 stories high and uh, uh, the Swan maybe about uh, uh, 12 there. And the reason for that is because that's what Michael Graves wanted. And Eisner wanted to send that message to other architects that, yes, you could work with Disney, that it, you didn't have to design a, a resort in the shape of Mickey Mouse and, and, and all of that, that we will work with your uh, vision. And, and that's exactly what happened. So you're you're bringing in people like uh, Robert Stern and Robert Venturi and and uh, Arado Isasaki and and all of these terrific ones because they're seeing how he's treating Michael Graves, which is basically giving him uh, a blank slate. But Michael Graves had never designed uh, a hotel before, and so that's why he's teamed with Lapidus because it's going to have the look of Michael Graves, but it's going to have that functionality that Lapidus brought to all of his uh, uh, projects. One of the reasons Tishman loved him is he, he brought things in on budget and he brought things in that were functional. 
Speaking of Tishman, as we said, Tishman is still involved at, in, at this point. In fact, Tishman is building this instead of the hotels that he had originally planned. Um, but his reaction to the design by Graves was a little different than, uh, than what um, Eisner said. Uh, uh, Tishman is quoted in the book uh, Disney War by uh, James B. Stewart as saying, um, This design is outrageous and impossible. The buildings make no sense practically or economically. But I guess Eisner won, and Tishman went ahead with it, and it was pretty well designed as, uh, as, as Graves planned it and as Eisner approved it and wanted it. I think that a lot of guests, and we'll talk about this later on, I think a lot of guests probably feel more towards Tishman than they do Eisner. Because I think it's a very interesting choice as to the time and place for Eisner to say, okay, you know, architect, why do it in a hotel right in the middle of, right next to Epcot Center as opposed to a corporate, you know, an office building, a Team Disney building, a casting building, whatever it is. And 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 again, you know, Michael Eisner had just come on, and uh, Imagineers, well, everyone was trying to bring him up to speed. Animators were trying to explain to him how animation was done because he ju- he he just did not get storyboards. How do you tell a story through storyboards? Give me a script. I understand story arcs and all that. Uh, same thing with Imagineering. They're going in and they're trying to explain to him this is the process. Uh, Michael, and of course, Michael was brought in to turn all of that up on on its uh, on its ear there, you know, uh, for for that to happen. And uh, he was um, Michael Graves was very uh, charismatic, and what he did, and they learned this later from working with other ar- architects, is Graves never brought in models. He'd come in and he'd talk and he'd talk about the history of architecture and 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 he'd have mood lighting in the room and all this, and so everybody, you know, it's almost like, and this will be just wonderful, and there'll be this, and there'll be this feeling, and 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 all of this uh, goes around now. One of the things that he sold to uh, Michael, and this is interesting because this is not written down anywhere. This was not shared with cast members. The reason I know this is I was an animation instructor at the Disney Institute in uh, 1996. One of the guest speakers there at the Performance Center was Michael Graves. And one of the things that we did in the uh, animation team is when we had speakers like that is after their presentation, we'd invite them over to, to Seasons, which was the, the restaurant up there, you know, either for a bite to eat or a cup of coffee or dessert or something like that. And so we had Michael Graves there and, and we were pumping him with, with all sorts of questions. And he said, oh, well, yes, don't, don't you see the, the story for this? With the dolphin, what that is, is there's been this... Um, earthquake this uh, I, I wanted to create this this feeling this tropical feeling and and all of this and so there's been this earthquake and whatever so this mountain under the water has thrust its way up so it's created this island that's why there's banana leaves along the side there and the dolphins have been uh, thrust high in into the uh, air that that's uh, why why those are and then what happened is that black box is the heart of the mountain and this has been so traumatic that what happens is the heart has burst open and the water spills out down the, those clam shells into that fountain and then it flows over to the swan and you'll even see uh, the railings are done up like uh, water going towards the swan, and when it originally opened, there was even uh, landscaping on that pathway there that curved, so it looked like, yes, waves, and it splashes up on the swan, and two swans have alighted to see this magnificent uh, event, and they are transformed into stone. And this is how Michael Graves pitched this to Eisner and the rest of the Disney executive team, and they said, this is wonderful, 
everything speaks. Imagineering has told me that everything has a story. I want everything to have a story. There's the story. Nobody else ever knew that story. Except for listeners of this podcast and uh, people who have read uh, the things that Jim Corcus has written about the subject. And that's the unfortunate thing is that when you say it, Jim, and we're sitting out here, you know, looking at the two hotels, it makes perfect sense. You, you understand that story. But, you know, unlike the other themed resorts that are themed to a location or a place or a time like the boardwalk, where it's very visible to guests, that story is invisible. How, what was the expectation for guests to be able to interpret that, or was there ever none? Well, and, and again, the feeling was uh, you didn't have to hit guests over the head. They, they would just be immersed in that experience, and, and they would know. You know, for instance, they would know that that outside dolphin uh, fountain, you know, with the dolphin fillets, uh, were, uh, is supposed to be the entrance uh, to the uh, uh, dolphin. In fact, that, that's supposed to be the portica share. And people say, but no, no, everybody parks the cars and, and, and that's the back of the building. Because when you go into a resort, where's the registration desk? On your right-hand side. When you come in from where you've parked your cars, registration desk is on the left. Unless you've come in from where the dolphin fountain, outside dolphin fountain is, and you go in and there it is on the right-hand side. You, you see all of the the decorations like that big thing so you think you're in uh, the I dream of genie uh, uh, bottle there you know or, or in a hot air balloon no that's supposed to be a cabana and and we'll see as as we saw today because uh, uh, the three of us walked uh, the entire area again to take a look because there's been some changes since the rehab in 2002 but uh, some of those items are still there to indicate that the, these are uh, uh, cabana and and we even see that in the walkway from um, the uh, dolphin to the swan, we, we see that cabana uh, feel. And when they opened, that was even greater because the carpets had uh, uh, seashells on them and, and water and, and the doors to each of the room looked like a, a, a cabana room. And so basically, to answer your question, Lou, people were just supposed to be, would just feel this, would just be immersed in this. But since the cast members didn't know this story, they couldn't communicate this story. They couldn't behave as if they were in that story. And so people took a look and said, well, this looks pretty uh, garish, you know? And the story is so abstract. It's not like that you can see a volcano or that you can even understand. I mean, people even ask the question, that doesn't look like a dolphin. That looks like a fish. Well, it is a dolphin fish. It is not the, it is not the mammal. But uh, people just don't get it, and I, I can see why. And I wouldn't get it without, I would not get it without Jim's explanation. No, and I've stayed here dozens of times, and I've been to the resort many times and eaten at the restaurants inside. And until you mentioned the cabana, I didn't understand what I had been seeing, and then I had that aha moment like yes I, I see it now and that's why I've described this resort to people as it's not a, a Disney themed resort it's very much uh, it gives you a resort type feel so if you want to come to Walt Disney World and get away from the pop century theming or the Caribbean beach theming it gives you that type of feel and now I understand why it is that way because you do feel as though you are in a cabana and you see it both in the exterior and interior design as well and uh, uh Going on uh, what uh, Werner just was saying about the uh, dolphins there, I was trying to get my thoughts organized here, is um, 
Michael Graves didn't want to use anything that was already in the Disney mythology, any of the Disney characters, whatever. He wanted to create his own mythology and then fold that into the Disney mythology. So he looked through uh, books and classic tales and all that, which is why he came up with uh, the dolphin and the uh, swan, uh, even though he keeps claiming that, yes, this is the tropical paradise and this is Florida, so it should be alligators or manatees or flamingos. And and uh, actually, that would probably be pretty cute with the alligator and the tail curved in the air and, and all that. And the dolphin doesn't look like a dolphin because, as, as Werner said, uh, this is the uh, classic dolphin. You can see examples of this. This is based on the work of uh, the Italian sculptor uh, Bernini, and in fact, if you're at the uh, Italian pavilion at uh, Epcot, you'll notice there's the Neptune fountain, and they have two dolphins there that are exactly uh, the same, with one change. And Michael Graves shared this. He says, well, you see the difference in the dolphins uh, up there. And I'm going, yeah, that's awfully hard. And uh, I'm squinting, I'm turning my eye. And he says, take a look at the mouth. He says, the traditional dolphin, the lips curved down. Michael Eisner said, that is not going to happen on Disney property. So I had to curve the lips of the dolphin up. But, you know, the, these both resorts, as you mentioned earlier, have spawned so many urban myths, urban legends. And, and I know Werner's written about these. Well, let's start with the one that I think is best known and that many people still believe, which is that, you know those black boxes on the front of the swan and dolphin? Those are not rooms. Those are areas that can be knocked out. They're just temporary covers so that the monorail can go through. And that's how it was originally designed, for the monorail to go through. And... Uh, Usually the person, the people who get the blame for that are some of the friendship uh, captains who, who run the boats uh, between uh, the resorts here on, um, on the Crescent Lake and, and Epcot. Um, and it, it's, it's a wonderful story, and people want to believe the monorail will be um, expanded. And they want to believe that there's a reason why there's a black box on the front of each of the uh, hotels. And there is a reason and the reason is because Michael Graves wanted a black box on the front of each hotel. It was part of a, a look that he was doing on a lot of his buildings. These were large buildings. He didn't like big blank buildings, you know, the big modern building that uh, just goes on and on forever with window after window. He wanted to break it up the same way that classical architecture, uh, or I should say architecture like of the early 20th century, would have rows of colonnades and other features on it to, uh, to break up the different stories. He would put these boxes on the fronts of buildings at uh, the... He did another hotel shortly after this one, the Hyatt Regency at Aventine in La Jolla, California. It has three black boxes on the front of it. But, you know, there were never any plans for three monorails to go through La Jolla, <laughs> all ending up at that hotel. And there were never plans for the monorail to go through the hotel here either. And, in fact, if you look up at the hotel from where we're sitting, well, we can get a somewhat obstructive view of the swan, not quite as good a view of the, of the black box here on the dolphin. But they're at completely different heights, and they're different, they're different sizes. And if you start really thinking about a lot of things, like where do the elevators go in the buildings, and would you really want to cut off the elevators? Um, you think about, um, you know, why does, I mean, I think on the Dolphin, it's what, like nine stories tall, the black box? Um, you'd have to, you'd, if you really wanted to knock out nine stories of rooms, um, why would you do that? And in fact, are there rooms behind there? One version of the rumor said, oh no, it's just, a, it's just a fake facade. It's just an empty space back there. But, you know, at night you look up there and you see people up in those rooms. You see some drapes open and some drapes closed and lights on in a bunch of rooms. 
So either they've got animatronics up there <laughs> acting as though they're hotel guests, all just for show, or it is what it really is. Those are just rooms, and it just happens to be a different color on the front of the building. But it's a good story and one that many people believe. And even if you look at the buildings closely, the width of the building itself wouldn't even accommodate mm -hmm. the monorail beams in a station. A a absolutely. And, and again, this is what uh, Imagineers like to call logical, erroneous conclusion. And this happens all the time with Disney fans when they don't know the story, they don't know the background. And it happens with cast members, too, whether, it, uh, whether it's the friendship boat uh, drivers or bus drivers or whatever. Uh, none of them are malicious. They're all well-meaning, but without knowing the story, they put together a couple of things and say, well, this is logical. This, this makes sense. And, of course, there was always talk about extending the monorail out here, just as there was talk of extending the monorail out to Disney Animal Kingdom because people were having difficulty that seemed far away on property and have a ticket and transportation center at uh, the studios. In fact, I uh, helped out uh, years ago with a focus group at the uh, studios where they brought in Disney guests, and they said... Uh, if we extended the monorail, would you be willing to buy a monorail pass? So instead of the monorail being free, you'd have to have a monorail pass to use it. And what would be uh, the uppermost cost that you would feel comfortable paying in order to, to use that, to, to help, you know, uh, uh, expand uh, the monorail? So you take that idea of, well, they're thinking of getting the monorail. Oh, where would it go? Oh, there's, there's where it would go. That makes absolute uh, perfect sense. No, it does not. And uh, it, just as it doesn't make sense that the, uh, the icons were switched, right, Werner? Well, that's the other big urban legend. And the story goes like this. Look at the Swan Hotel. By the way, the Swan is the Weston Hotel. It's uh, no longer the Crown Plaza that I was referring to much earlier. And um, if you look at that hotel, it has ocean waves and seashells on it. But there are swans on top. And then, then if you look at the other hotel, the Dolphin, um, it has these uh, you know, banana leaves on it and grasses. And uh, clearly, there's only one explanation for that. The swans and the dolphins were switched. The helicopter pilot who was lifting them into the place accidentally put them in the, on the wrong building. That the dolphin was supposed to be on the building with the waves because dolphins live in the sea. And the swans were supposed to be on the building with the grasses because swans live on the land, or I guess they float on the water or whatever. But um, again, it's, it's a good story, and it's not at all true. The, um, going back to the story that Jim was telling earlier about Michael Graves' whole um, backstory for these uh, hotels, clearly the, uh, the swans and dolphins figured exactly into the stories of the hotels in which they were built. But again, it just sounds so good that the helicopter pilot messed up and it would have been too expensive to move them at that point, so they switched the names. Right, and the way it was told to me by a very enthusiastic mm -hmm. cast member when I was stuck in a friendship boat during a lightning storm was that, yeah, they had, uh, just as they were placing the last one down, somebody finally looked down at the architectural blueprints and went, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on a second. These are backwards. Nobody's looked at the plans until now. We got to, and they said, "Oh, it's just too expensive. Just leave them there, and, and it'll be okay." And of course, helicopters weren't involved at all. These are cranes that are being used to, to, to begin with, and these are tremendously uh, uh, heavy. In fact, uh, Michael Graves uh, sculpted, um, you know, uh, small models, which were then uh, digitized and all that. They actually had to go uh, to a uh, boat builder 
to, you know, twist the uh, uh, things into that shape and then, then you cover it over. It's hollow inside, inside each one of those, and there's stairways, you know, for maintenance. And, for instance, even on the swans, the uh, wings are uh, the highest point on that building, so there's uh, a lightning rod in there uh, to get that. But uh, as you were pointing out today, uh, too, Werner, even the story that Michael Graves told me doesn't cover everything because you take a look at the bottom of the dolphin and you see sort of the image of a bridge and portholes. And so how does that fit into the story of an, an, an island? And the, there, there's all of this. And yes, there are rooms behind the black box. But interestingly enough, if you go high enough above that black box, there's about 80 feet where on the outside they've done windows. So it looks like fake rooms, but there's nothing inside. And of course, since you know, Michael uh, Eisner hadn't seen any of these plans. He just heard these great visions by Michael Graves. As this was uh, being built and all this, he's standing in that space that's 80 feet high, and, and there's Alan Lapidus, and there's uh, Michael Graves, and there's Eisner, and Eisner says, well, well, what are you intending to do with all of this? And Michael Graves looked at him and said, well, Michael, this is going to be your apartment. <laughs> And Michael Eisner said nothing. And and again, that was Graves' uh, uh, sense of uh, uh, humor there. And, and of course, one of the wonderful stories, and, and we'll uh, put this so that Lou can uh, cut this if he wants, because, no, I've, I've had that experience. I want people to know that I absolutely love Disney. I do. You can lo- love the Disney brand and still have uh, some... Uh, questions or challenges about how the Disney business operates. But anytime I say anything where Disney may have made a misstep, people uh, write in and go, Lou, Lou, you, you should you should hang that guy up. You know, you're becoming one of those podcasts, Lou. But uh, when the uh, Dolphin uh, was dedicated, when it was opened in 1990, it was the same year that Dick Tracy was released. So there was a big party out here and all the stars were out here. And so in the lobby, Alan Lapidus uh, was uh, standing with uh, Michael Eisner, and someone came rushing down, and uh, oh, Mr. Eisner, Mr. Eisner, we, we, we have a huge problem. Warren Beatty is complaining that there's a mouse in his room. And Alan Lapidus explained, well, this is not unusual. When you're doing constructions, it's not unusual for a, a field mouse or even a family of field mice uh, to, to take up uh, residence, uh, you know, uh, even just after it was built. In fact, the same thing happened at uh, uh, Disneyland. And so Michael Eisner uh, turned to the guy and said, take an exterminator up there right away. And Alan Lapidus said, now, wait a mi- minute, Michael. Do you see the irony that you're sending an exterminator up there to kill a mouse? And he said, Michael didn't see the humor in that. <laughs> There's, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the things we went over as far as the interior design, because I think mm-hmm. it's something that, again, is overlooked. But we were talking about the monorails and the black box. It made me think of another urban legend that is one that continues to rear its head Every year, which again is about that expansion of the monorail, whether it's to Animal Kingdom, to the studios, to Beastly Kingdom, wherever it is that it's going. And I says, well, they couldn't do it because it would be a million dollars a mile. And that very much is untrue because I think Disney wishes it was only a million dollars a mile. If they could add 10 million, uh, 10, if 10 million dollars would buy 10 miles of new <laughs> monorail, they would have jumped at the opportunity. I don't have the numbers in front of me of what the Las Vegas monorail cost, but it was several hundred million dollars a mile. And um, that's using the same technology, the same Bombardier technology that, in fact, Bombardier bought from the Disney companies as part of uh, the transition so that Bombardier, Bombardier could build the new monorail trains for Walt Disney World. 
the most the ones that are currently running. And speaking of the monorail too, I remember there's also um, there's also a story that that uh, many DVC members talk about, which is about the monorail being extended out to Disney's Saratoga Springs Resort, and that was a place that they've already been told, yeah, there's a good chance a monorail may be coming coming by. Uh, there may be actually some truth to that urban legend. Well, there's actually a reason why people can legitimately have that belief. Um, there's a bunch of paperwork that people have to sign when they buy any sort of a timeshare, including Disney Vacation Club. And among it is the, you know, what are the easements through the property? And, uh, you know, what are the, where are the rights limited and such? And, well, it turns out there is a monorail easement through uh, Saratoga Springs. But that doesn't mean that there's going to be a monorail built. It means that sometime... Decades before Saratoga Springs was built, somebody was planning where would the monorail easements be on property should the monorail ever be extended to those places. And in fact, I, uh, on my website, I have a picture of a, a model that uh, shows monorail and apparently people mover track going around downtown Disney. Uh, going through the Saratoga Springs uh, would, would have been the same line that would have gone through Saratoga Springs. But I certainly don't expect to see that in my lifetime or in my children's lifetime or um, anybody's lifetime. And, and I think the, the, the Las Vegas monorail was about $654 million for just over four miles, to sort of put it in context. So you're looking at... Uh... And I think there's... Uh, it's slightly comparing apples to oranges because things like land acquisition and those things are different. And, and uh, the land itself. And the yeah, land itself here, though. Here it's probably... Some of the supports might actually cost more, whereas land acquisition might cost less. But we're still talking about something that's 50, 100, 200 million dollars a mile, not a million dollars a mile. Yeah. They're still looking for some of the pilings that they sunk over by the contemporary... Uh... Yeah, and, and when it comes to transportation, it was never Walt's vision that there would be a fleet of Mears buses <laughs> on property. You know, even when the... Uh, I've been doing an awful lot of research on the opening of uh, Walt Disney World because we're celebrating the uh, 40th, and a lot of people don't realize that when Walt Disney World opened, when the Magic Kingdom opened, primarily you were taking the monorail over there. You didn't have those big uh, steamships. There were little ferries that were hustled into service by Dick Nunes, and there were parts parking lot trams that were going to take you around, but they kept overheating and breaking down and and, uh, all of that. But uh, basically, Walt's philosophy was that you wouldn't need your own car on property. That was the whole uh, uh, foundation of um, his original concept of Epcot, in which they were trying to do with the Magic Kingdom. But, you know, we've been talking so long here, and those of you who are just listening can't see how how nervous and uh, anxious Lou is because he has these hands on these plungers for us to implode the um, Walt Disney World uh, uh, dolphin and 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 swan and and I and I told him you have to get the official approval for that Lou you know uh, imploding is not as easy as you might think I'm actually not the one that wants to implode it um, I, I enjoy these resorts um, I, I talked about I think they are in a great location. I think they offer some wonderful amenities and things like that. And I want to talk a little bit more about the the theming inside because they mm-hmm. are uh, often referred to by people. Uh, you know, the Internet is, is an amazing thing because we all have a voice now and an online discussion forums for years. People have been talking about how the Swan and Dolphin lack theming. You've certainly established that the theming uh, takes place outside. I want to talk about the theming inside, but the, the rumor that you're referring to is not one that I certainly want to implode, but there is a rumor that... that brings itself up on forums quite often is that 
when this contract, when this mysterious contract with the hotel uh, managers runs out, that Disney is planning on imploding the Swan and Dolphin and building real Disney-themed hotels there. And that seems pretty unlikely, considering that these hotels were several hundred million dollars. I want to say around $300 million when they were originally built. And in today's money, that would be a great deal more. So they represent huge investments. They really are pretty nice hotels. Now, we can argue about whether they're in the right place or not, or how well the story works, and whether uh, Disney made a mistake or whether Eisner made a mistake in going with this uh, and having such hotels built 20 years ago. But the fact is they're here, they make money, presumably they make money for, for Disney because Disney gets uh, money for being on Disney property, makes money for the hotel company, makes money for the chain affiliations, uh, for the Starwood, uh, Weston, and Sher- uh, Sheraton brands. And so there doesn't seem to be any, nobody is in a hurry to implode these. And it's certainly not that Disney hates these hotels. And as we talked about earlier, Michael Eisner is the whole reason why these hotels were built. I think a lot of people overlook these hotels because they think that they are quote-unquote, not Disney hotels, again, because of that theming. Uh, And I think you hit on a point, which is it's not necessarily the hotels themselves, but sort of where they are, because if you're standing on the boardwalk, they almost seem like they're out of place with uh, the entire theming of of this area. Uh, You're absolutely right, Lou. It's impacted so many things. In fact, we we even have... um a, a shop on the boardwalk that has uh, waves on the top there, so it looks like the the swan is resting on the waves. And of course, by being so high, it even affected World Showcase because uh, the back facades of the pavilions hadn't been done because nobody would see them. And now, with the introduction of that and the international uh, gateway, they had to redo the uh, uh, back facade of, of France, for instance, because when you're in the French pavilion, you see the Eiffel Tower in the distance, and it's a wonderful wonderful perspective illusion and and you just think yeah it goes all the way to the ground and all that and uh, here's a spoiler warning for people so you can uh, click out for a couple of seconds here. Those who have taken backstage tours or who have worked at Disney know that the Eiffel Tower is on top of the back building there Uh, but again you can see that now from from the dolphin. So they had to build up the facade and build up so it it doesn't look like it's on on top of uh, uh, the roof there. Also, the reason why this was outsourced, at least according to the the Disney official line, is that uh, Disney had not built any hotels in 15 years. And so we're unfamiliar with how does business operate now, how the whole process. And so Michael Eisner's belief was if we have somebody else do this, we can watch and study how they do that, and then we can do it on our own, which is exactly what happened. And so after Swan and Dolphin, then you have this whole flood of uh, uh, wonderful uh, hotels of uh, uh, Port Orleans and uh, the Grand Floridian and, 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 and all of these in, in, in the different uh, ranges and, and no reason um, uh, to do that. And, and, and again, I agree with uh, Werner. It would be unlikely for them to implode the buildings. And in fact, the Disney tradition has always been to try to reutilize the existing structure. So whether it's uh, 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 using the existing structure for World of Motion to do uh, test track, and actually probably would have been better if they had used an entire one, or, or you use the existing structure of uh, uh, Dream Flight, you know, for Buzz... Uh, um, 
light ranger uh, spin there, uh, light year uh, ranger spin, space ranger spin. So uh, the tradition was let's use the, the space that exists and how can we reformat that. Uh, so those who are out there hoping that these there will be a cloud of dust and the dolphins and swans will be on uh, uh, Disney auction on uh, eBay uh, may have to wait just a while for that to happen. Well, part of why I wanted to do this was because I hope that people get a new understanding and appreciation of what they're seeing, maybe walk through the resorts and understand what that story is. And just real quick, because you know, we've talked a lot about Michael Eisner, um, and for a lot of people... It's easy to remember the bad things that happen, the bad legacy that somebody leaves behind. But, you know, it's important because we talk about how everything has a story, and that, too, you need to sort of attribute to the fact that that was one thing that Michael Eisner made sure he wanted to happen, even in these buildings that, for many people, they don't think tells a story. Tell us about some of the theming and the story that takes place inside. Okay, and and again, I'd I'd like to give a shout-out to to Michael Eisner. I think in the last years he became toxic, uh, to the company. But in the beginning, uh, I think a lot of people forget that he really was the knight in shining armor that was rescuing, you know, the Disney uh, uh, princess. And and the thing with Michael is he had dozens of ideas. You know, uh, an ABC executive who worked with him said, yes, Michael will come in with 100 ideas. 99 of them don't make sense. Like, let's take all the furniture and nail it to the ceiling. Well, why, Michael? Well, it'll be different, you know? But the one idea he has was amazing. And so when Frank Wells was around, there was that balance. Because when Michael Eisner was first talking about hotels, he envisioned a uh, Mickey Mouse hotel uh, straddling uh, Buena Vista there. And there'd be rooms in the legs, and there'd be elevators in the legs. And uh, uh, you'd drive underneath Mickey Mouse, and it was Frank Wells who said, Michael, you realize all these drivers are going to be looking up at Mickey's crotch. And it was Michael Eisner who said, why don't we have Winnie the Pooh toilet seats? See, Pooh toilet seats. And it was Wells who stepped in and said, no, we have a certain brand and a certain character integrity, and we shouldn't be looking at, you know, this year's profit or next year's profit or even five years, but for the long run. Frank Wells was that wonderful, wonderful uh, balance there for it. Now, the interior... Of both of these resorts that you wanted to talk about, originally they were done by Michael Graves as well. So he came up with the designs for the restaurants and for the for the rooms, and there there's uh, uh, paintings that he's done. In fact, uh, uh, today we we discovered a, a, a giant one uh, signed by him in 1990 when 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 the resort uh, opened. And uh, again, as we we alluded to, it was going to be a, a cabana. Uh, experience. You were going to be out in the the uh, 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 the tropics here, so uh, the carpets would have shells on them, and and water wiggles, and the doors would would look like a cabana door, and and all of the decorations you have. Even when you come into the the uh, dolphin today, from the back of the dolphin where you park, uh, you'll you'll see pictures of of, of fish and and all of that. Uh, uh, floating uh, uh, along there. So it was all more cohesive. Uh, Even the gift shop in the Swan is called Cabanas. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other thing that Michael Graves uh, instituted, which uh, as we walked around today, we, we see has, has pretty much been gutted, although there are remnants of that. Uh, his philosophy is there were going to be two differences between the dolphin and the, and the Swan, and it wasn't just in terms of size. In the uh, dolphin where things were three-dimensional, you couldn't touch them. 
So the interior uh, fountain, dolphin fountain in the lobby there, yes, it almost looks like you can touch, but if you reach out, you absolutely cannot. So things that are three-dimensional, you can't touch, but things that are two-dimensional. And so, for instance, we find the, the cutouts uh, along the, the bottom floor there, too, of the curtains for the cabana, and they're two-dimensional uh, cutouts there. And then when you come outside, you see the dolphin fountain, which was going to be much, much larger because the dolphins were going to be three-dimensional. But Michael Eisner said, we can't see the swan, so you've got to get rid of those dolphins or whatever. So Graves said he made them into dolphin fillets. And so by making them two-dimensional, the uh, fountain actually became smaller. And as we saw today, you could literally sit on the edge there and reach out. You could, you could touch one of those dolphins. Now, the opposite was going to be true in the swan. Where things are three-dimensional, you can touch them. So the swan fountain in there, and again, we walked in there and saw that today. You can sit on the edge. You can reach out. You can touch that three-dimensional uh, uh, swan. Maybe we should start an urban legend that you have to you have to rub that for good luck or, or something. I, there's an urban legend I, ju- I just found out that the uh, mural in, in Cinderella's castle, you're supposed to rub the glass slipper in memory of all the Disney cast members long gone. I'd never heard that before. So you can start any legend you want. Uh, also in the restaurants and in there, uh, and we see they've been removed, uh, but some of the listeners might remember that, they had two-dimensional figures like monkeys and parrots and all that, but they were out of reach. They were up in the air. So uh, again, they were going to be the reverse. Also in the... Um, swan it was designed to confuse you because again you're coming there for conventions so uh michael graves says we want people to think out of the box so when you come in instead of the registration desk on the right it's on the left you're in this huge area this huge covered area and you can't tell which way to go clearly where is your room you know there's no point of reference you can't see down the hall to where you're going to to go whereas at the swan it's more linear the registration desk is on the right. Uh, the aisleways are, are perpendicular and, and they're shorter, so it's clearer to see. But since the redo in 2002, since nobody knew any of this, you can change anything you want because you don't realize it's affecting other things that are going on. Yeah, and that's why I think it's so important that you guys are able to help convey these stories, both about the history, to clear up confusion, I think, that people have about the genesis of the resort's credit given where it's due to the people who helped make it happen and understand its connection to where it is now and even Epcot Center in the distance. Uh, Again, understanding the theming will hopefully make people go and visit and appreciate the resorts even more. Uh, So Jim Corcus, you know, you can hear him on the show all the time. He's a frequent contributor to Celebrations Magazine. Buy his book. Don't forget, not to, no, don't buy his book. Buy two copies of his book. The Vault, The Vault. I'll put a link in this week's show notes. You can also check it out at Amazon.com. And, of course, Werner Weiss from Yesterland.com. Wonderful site, especially if you're into Disney theme park history. Um, He's got some amazing uh, articles and photos you're not going to find anywhere else. And uh, I want to thank both of you guys for coming out today and uh, joining me on the boardwalk, touring the, uh, the Swan and the Dolphin with me. Thank you. This was a lot of fun, and I agree. Buy Jim's book. It's a terrific book. And check Yesterland every Friday. There's a new article. And, uh, yes, I'm, I'm available for bar mitzvahs and, uh, and birthday party clowning and uh, all of that. Lou, it's an absolute pleasure. I hope that all of your listeners get a chance to meet you in person. You're a magnificent person. Thank you for keeping the magic alive and the stories alive. Guys, thanks so much. Thank you, Lou. And, again, thanks for all you do. Imagination. 
That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Hope you enjoyed our look at the history and the stories of the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin. If so, come by and share your thoughts and comments and feedback over on the show notes over at www.radio.com. Also want to say big thanks to my friend Jim Corkus. You can find more of his great work and some of those stories behind the stories in every issue of Celebrations Magazine. You could also visit this week's show notes and get a link over to buy his book, The Vault of Walt, over on Amazon.com. You can find Werner Weiss's great history of Disneyland, other Disney parks, including Walt Disney World, over at Yesterland.com. I'll put links to everything over in this week's show notes over at WDWRadio.com. While you're on the site, be sure and check out our blog, our Disney Book Club. We have a chat with Ridley Pearson coming up this Wednesday night. Come by, talk and meet with other Disney fans on our fun, free, friendly discussion forums. And check out some of our new videos posted every week as well. I mentioned our live chat with author Ridley Pearson coming up this Wednesday night at 7.30 over at www.radiolive.com. And be sure and join us every Wednesday night at 7.30 for the WDW Newscast, a live interactive discussion about this week's Walt Disney World news. I do a video broadcast. You can watch and chat real time in the chat room and be part of the conversation. If you can't make it live, you can check it out on YouTube at youtube.com slash Radio or on the WDW Radio blog. And you can also get the audio-only portion of the newscast in the WDW Radio iTunes feed as well. Also, while you're on the site, be sure and check out the WW Radio shop where you can get signed copies of my Walt Disney World trivia books, my audio guides to Walt Disney World on CD, and lots more. There you'll also find a link over to iTunes where you can download the free WW Radio iPhone app and the all-new Walt Disney World trivia app with more than 750 questions, descriptive answers, hundreds of additional did-you-know facts and figures, lots more. Again, the link is right on the site where you can also just search for WDW Trivia in iTunes. If you like either or both of the apps, we'd really appreciate it if you can rate and review them while you're in iTunes as well. Be sure and check out DisneyMeets.com for upcoming Meets of the Month in Walt Disney World, including next week in Japan for Japan. It's going to be Saturday, June 11th. We're going to meet in Japan in World Showcase. Also going to start doing some fundraising for the Japanese earthquake relief. Stay tuned to the show, Twitter, Facebook, and the WDW Radio blog for more information. And also be sure and visit DisneyMeets.com for information about upcoming events in and out of Walt Disney World, including the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet on June 25th, D23 coming this summer. We will be back at the Expo once again this summer in the Collectors Forum, but if you can't make it out there, we're going to have full live coverage and lots of surprises and more. You can check it out over at D23Live.com. There we'll post updates, and you can also check out some videos from the last D23 Expo in 2009. Quick thanks to my partners and sponsors, including Mouse Fan Travel. They are my official and recommended travel provider. Look, Becky and her team gives you not only the best possible personal service that you would come to expect, but also the best prices and discounts on your Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney Vacation. If you're coming to Walt Disney World, maybe you want something a little more space, a, a kitchen, multiple master bedrooms, your own private pool, spa, game rooms, lots more. Check out All-Star Vacation Homes and their two-bedroom condos up to seven-bedroom luxury homes. Again, 
just within a couple of miles of Walt Disney World. And while you're in Disney, be sure and head to downtown Disney and check out Bongo's Cuban Cafe for lunch or dinner. They've got indoor, outdoor seating, three bars, an express window, live music and dancing on Friday and Saturday night, and of course, great cuisine as well. You can also visit them online at bongoscubancafe.com. And finally, when you're staying in Walt Disney World, be right in the heart, walking distance to Epcot and Disney's Hollywood Studios over at Swan and Dolphin. I love not only the heavenly beds, but the restaurants and lounges and Blue Zoo and Peekaboo and the pool and did I mention Blue Zoo? Again, check them out over at swananddolphin.com. Of course, I love hearing from you guys. So if you have a question you want me to answer on the show, you can email me at lou at wdwradio.com or if you want to be heard on the air, call the voicemail toll-free at 888-703-2171. Again, lots more coming uh, for the show, for the newscast, and a few other projects I'm working on as well. Looking forward to sharing those with you. One thing we just finished was issue 18 of Celebrations Magazine. That will be mailing out in July, so if you're looking to subscribe, be sure and do it before June 9th in order to start your subscription with the next issue. For more information to subscribe or order back issues, visit CelebrationsPress.com. And as always, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, if you like the show, all I ask is that you please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Your friends, your family, tweet out that you're listening. Share the link on Facebook. Please come by, review the show and the apps over in iTunes. And remember that you can follow your dreams and do what you love each and every day. So take those first steps towards pursuing your passion. And once you do, always, always keep moving forward. I hope you have a great, great week, everybody. See ya. Hi, Lou. This is Jen Tremley from Bristol, Connecticut. Just wanted to leave you a quick voicemail and say that I just finished uh, listening to show number 222 this week with uh, part two of your Jeff Curdy interview. And I uh, just wanted to say I appreciated the show. I uh, enjoyed it very much, and I'm looking forward to reading some of Jeff's books that I did get at my local library. And uh, I didn't even know, but I already have the Disney Welcome Aboard book that I ended up getting as a promotion um, and didn't even realize that he um, was the author of it. So when he mentioned that on the interview, I was very pleased to see that I do already own that book, and I was able to enjoy his uh, his uh, drawings and just the whole uh artist rendition of the boat itself, even though I've never been on the Disney Dream. I hope that I will be able to at some day. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to call and say hi. Hope, every, hope everybody has a great week, and I'm um, just counting down the days to my Disney trip in September. Talk to you later. Hey, you lose. This is Joey, Navy Mouse on the forum. Just got back from Walt Disney World, and just wanted to uh, give you a highlight of um, uh exciting part of my trip. I got to, I auditioned for and made it on the show for American Idol. And even though I didn't win my show, it was just such a blast. Uh, cast members were great in helping us, the performers, feel comfortable and make sure we have fun. And, you know, the audience was great and cheering for all the performers and booing the one judge who would say nasty comments. And, and even after I performed, you know, people would come up to me and say, yeah, I voted for you. And even the next day in the Magic Kingdom, someone came up to me and was like, hey, I voted for you. You did a great job. So it was just a, a fantastic experience that I could only got at Disney World. And I encourage anyone who has any kind of singing talent to, to audition. You know, it's, it's, it's such a blast. So thanks, and I'll talk to you later. Bye. Hey, Lou, this is uh, the Tevens family from Colorado. Actually, I'm solo on this trip. 
traveling cross country heading back to Colorado right now, but one of my stops was in Dayton, Ohio. I stopped to see uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, the Air Force Museum, and I was, uh, I guess I was somewhat surprised. There's a display in there dedicated to Walt Disney in the World War II section. It is really well done, and it focuses on the development, design, production of military units, squadron, company, whatever, uh, unit patches. Um, you know, things he did. Tough times for the studio back then. Uh, all the Snow White money was pretty much spent and nothing else was really coming in. But as Walt said, although this took up a tremendous amount of uh, time, money, resources, animators, because he did the whole thing. He did the coordination, design, production, development. Uh, as he said, I guess due to his noblesse oblige, how could he say no? Uh, it's well done. There's narrative, there's audiovisual, there's a lot of things to look at. And there's a lot of film clips there that are original back in the studio showing Walt and his animators putting this thing together. Uh, very surprised, and I'd recommend it to anybody who's a Disney fan. Uh, also, interesting to note, my first operational assignment when I was in the Air Force was with the 309th TAC Fighter Squadron. Their uh, call sign was the Wild Ducks, and what was on their patch? Donald Duck. Uh, I still have a number of those. I can send one on to you if you might have an interest in that. Well, the next stop is on to Marceline, and uh, when I get out of there, I'll give you a report on that. I expect that's going to be kind of a pilgrimage for me and kind of a movie experience. Hey, Luke, take care. Thanks for all you do, and uh, take care, my friend. Goodbye. You've got a friend.